0: The teaching of God's word. And now, with today's message, here is our teacher.
1: One of the most terrifying things that is out of the Holocaust in World War II when the people of an entire nation set out to exterminate the Jewish people is the haunting image that I've mentioned to you before. It comes from the picture of Auschwitz, where above the entrance to the death camp were the words Arbite mocked. Fry. The same thing stood above Dachau. Arbeit mach frei. The German phrase means work will liberate you. Work gives you freedom. Work makes you free. And it was a lie. It was a lie and it was a false hope. And the idea behind it was that the Germans would get the people thinking that hard work equaled freedom, hard work equaled liberation. But as we know, liberation was horrible suffering and even death. Arbeit macht frei. Now, one reason that this phrase haunts me so much is because it is a spiritual lie of this age. It is a satanic lie. It is a religious lie. It is a false hope, an impossible dream for many people in the world who believe that work Hard work will liberate them, that somehow their good works are going to be great enough to outweigh their bad things in life that they do. And this will allow them to stand before God in eternity and say to him, you owe me the right to enter into heaven. It is the hope of every false religion that art bite, mocked, fry good works will liberate you. You see, that's what the book of Galatians is about. It is to stand against that lie, that very lie from the pits of hell. It is showing us the beauty of a life in Jesus Christ an abundance of freedom that we have to walk with Christ. You see, I believe that the book of Galatians is one of the most important books in the entire Bible. And so it's my hope that if you've never really understood what the gospel of grace is, that our study together will change your understanding of God and change your understanding of his grace, his love and his joy. Now, the letter to the churches of Galatia has been rightly described as the backbone and background for every great spiritual movement throughout all of church history. And I pray that as we work our way through this over the coming weeks and months, that this study of Galatians will change your entire life and change your entire thinking. Because if you've ever fought battle after battle to try and free yourself from the shackles of guilt and shame, if you've tried to measure up, but you constantly feel like you're falling short, if you feel that you can never be the man or the woman that God wants you to be, If you're struggling with sin, if you find it hard to make good decisions, good choices in life, if you struggle with legalistic tendencies, if you don't feel forgiven in Christ, if you feel condemned and guilty, there is freedom found in the book of Galatians. Freedom that can only come by the grace of God. Now Galatians, it is the very first letter that the apostle Paul wrote. Paul wrote this right before the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. It's the first letter that Paul wrote. Why? Because this was the first problem that he faced in the church. As the good news of Christ's death, resurrection and salvation went out to the Gentiles, false teachers, you know, were following around the apostles, teaching that in order to be a real child of God, in order to be an absolute child of God, in order to be a follower of Christ, you must first, become a Jew. You have to keep the law. You have to keep the traditions. That is what it took to be acceptable to God. It's the old thing of law versus grace. It's a battle for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing more could be important. And so Paul spoke some strong words against those that would dare to attempt and corrupt the gospel. Paul is writing to the churches in what we know today as Southern Turkey, the churches of Southern Galatia, Lystra, Icodium, Pisidian, Antioch, Derbe, writing as early as 48 AD to the churches that were established on his first missionary journey. You remember that Paul was born in the region, in that region, in the city of Tarsus. He understood the people of Galatia. He understood their culture. But when Paul wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia, he did it with bad manners. He did it in a kind of a rude way, and he did it on purpose. You see, when you wrote a letter like this, after getting through the introduction, you would say something nice to the people that you were writing to. Something like, I give thanks to you for this and then whatever you're giving thanks for. And if you look at all of the rest of Paul's letters, you find that there's always some word of thanksgiving for the people. But you don't see that in Galatians, not in Galatians, because Paul is filled with a passion, a love for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the introduction of all the other epistles. It always gives us a clear understanding of what the letter is going to be about. And Galatians is absolutely no exception. So Paul begins with a statement about his apostolic authority. And it's for good reason, because Paul is about to write about the nature of the gospel of Christ itself. And if Paul was not an apostle of Christ, he had no authority to teach on the gospel. But if he was an apostle, then he was speaking for God. So we start with verse one where Paul writes. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Paul, an apostle, Boy, I love it when they include the names first, it makes it so much easier, doesn't it? And he puts it up front, apostle of Jesus Christ, very blunt, very to the point, An apostle is someone who has been sent with the authority to represent someone else as if they were here in person. Paul is saying, I am an ambassador. I am an envoy. I am an apostle. I am a believer who has seen the resurrected Christ and who has been commanded directly by Jesus Christ himself to preach and lay the foundation of the church age. Do you see it? It's an important mission not from men, nor through men. My authority, he says, does not come from men, nor did his authority come through any one man. He's saying it didn't come from Ananias and it didn't come from Barnabas, but rather through Jesus Christ and God, the father. Notice here with me that Jesus and God, the father are linked by one preposition. Paul is putting them on equal footing, equal plane. He's saying my authority isn't human. It comes from God himself. Skip ahead with me, if you would, to verse 11. It says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very bold claim. Paul, are you saying that you speak for God? Because in order to be an apostle, you had to actually have seen Christ. Paul, when did you see Jesus Christ? What's well, recorded in Acts 9. Remember that Paul was a fire-breathing persecutor of the Christians, a killer of the people of God. Paul was riding along on his way to Damascus and he saw a light from heaven. He fell down on the ground when Jesus Christ revealed himself. Now, this voice came down from heaven with the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul was told to go to Damascus. And then we are told of Ananias in that city who heard the same, same voice of the Lord. And Ananias was told that this guy named Saul would show up this guy who kills Christians. But I want you to understand that Saul is also something else. Christ told him a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul would later write to the church at Ephesus this. He would say to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles. What? The unsearchable riches of Christ. This is what Galatians chapter one is all about. God's grace and the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's apostleship is either from God and it's true or it's not. And he's a liar. But if it's true, then you believe what Paul said, because to reject Paul's message was to reject God himself. But if you do not believe that Paul was an apostle, then Paul is a liar and you should rip out so much of the New Testament, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the doctrine of of the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth contending for. And in 2000 years of church history, there is nobody, in my opinion, used more to contend for this biblical truth than a man named Athanasius, Athanasius. If you're a student of church history, he was born in the year 298 AD in Egypt. In his early 20s, he was just a deacon in the church of Alexandria, North Africa. And during that time, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, it came under a brutal attack by a highly influential pastor named Arius. Now, Arius taught that Jesus was just a created being, that Jesus had a beginning and that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. And therefore, according to Arius, Jesus is the son of God, but not God, the son. And his heresy was later known as the Arian heresy. It sparked a flame throughout the Roman empire that would dominate the church for 60 years. And it was a 20 year old young man by the name of Athanasius, 40 years younger than Arius, that God would use to contend for the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Now, Athanasius would endure decades of persecution. He was banished from the church. He was sent into exile five different times. He was framed for murder, threatened with death, slandered by emperors and bishops, all for standing firm, to the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. In the end, he prevailed. Truth was preserved and the church of Jesus Christ has stood on his shoulders ever since. And I would say the same thing is true here with the Apostle Paul. You see, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the gospel of Christ, it is worth fighting for. It is worth contending for. And Paul reasserts that God's grace is the only means of salvation. Verse three. Grace to you and peace from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You can tell by just reading these words that Paul was feeling a little feisty. What had him so on edge? Why was the apostle of grace erupting and exploding like there was a volcano? Well, it had to do with doctrine. And there was certainly a power play that was going on. You see, the Galatians had heard the gospel of Jesus when Paul came through on his first missionary journey, preaching Christ. But just a few months later, the legalists had followed right after where Paul had preached, telling the people that they needed to come and listen to the rest of the gospel, telling them that it's not just enough to have faith in Jesus Christ. You have to add something to it. And so they started listing all the traditions and all the works that were said to go along with faith that happened in every city that Paul had gone to. You know, we like to sit back in our comfortable day and glorify the new Testament church, but they were no better than us. They were plagued with problems. Think of in Rome and in Ephesus, there was division between Jews and Gentiles. They wouldn't eat together. They wrestled over which day to worship on. In Corinth, you had the carnality taking place and small factions fighting over powerful personalities. In Thessalonica, you had people correctly understand that Jesus could come at any time, but they took it to mean they didn't have to go to work. In Philippi, there were two women who had so many personal problems, they were splitting up the entire group. And Crete, when Paul wrote to Titus, there was somebody causing problems, somebody causing factions. And so it was all the way throughout the New Testament. And that's the way it was in Galatia. And Paul attacked these problems head on. Skip down to verse six in chapter one. Notice how he confronts these problems. Hard truths that need to be said. He said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Or look ahead to chapter three, verse one. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified And he said, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You see, Paul didn't shy away from it because he knew the gospel is important. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important subject to mankind. But what gives Paul the right? Go back to the introduction. In verse three, he says, grace to you and peace from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ. His right to speak like this became true because his authority came from God. But notice again that he puts God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ on equal footing. Grace to you and peace. That is what God wanted for them. But Paul says, I'm speaking from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I am bringing this message from God. I speak for him. And if you don't listen, you're not gonna experience that grace. Now, the most amazing part of the gospel of grace is that God didn't wait around. He didn't sit back and wait for mankind to initiate good works so that we could somehow impress him. It's actually the other way around, isn't it? That God initiated a plan to rescue us and bring us to himself. He did it by sending Christ to rescue us. Christ came to deliver us. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest display of divine love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And don't miss the teaching. This is probably the earliest statement, the earliest statement written in the New Testament about the significance of the death of Jesus Christ. And there's actually two parts of the gospel clearly stated here. He gave himself for our sins. What is that? Substitution. He gave himself in our place for our sins. That's the first part. But in order to understand this, you have to see that there's a also a description of our condition as well. Every person apart from God stands guilty before God. We have committed offenses toward God and without Jesus Christ, we're absolutely helpless to do anything about it. Go back to that image of Auschwitz, if you would. Look at the pictures of these people. Look at absolutely how hopeless and spent they are. Why? Because they're the victims of the Nazis. They've been enslaved prisoners of the Nazis and their enslavement has rendered them weak and helpless. But you see, those pictures are like pictures of us because of our sin against God. You see, left on our own, we are weak. We are helpless. We have committed crimes against a holy and righteous God. And the greatest crime of all is the independent and prideful spirit that says, somehow I'm going to be so good, I'm going to stand before God without a blood sacrifice to pay for my own sins. You see, if the Galatian churches were to accept any other message as an answer to sin, they would be denying the value and the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. See, God tells us in his word, you cannot stand before me without a sacrifice that I accept as worthy to pay for your sins. And the only blood sacrifice that God accepts as worthy is the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. These people in the death camps were helpless, and that is our spiritual condition before God without Christ. We need help. But Christians, through the blood offering of Jesus, we have been set free. Praise God. We have been liberated. And that's what he tells us when Paul says that Christ gave himself for our sins substitution so that he might deliver us from this present evil age. That's the second part of it. This is liberation. Christ has delivered us from our sin in order to deliver us from what scripture calls this present evil age, because we live in a world that is dominated and ruled by Satan. Paul lived in that same world he lived in it too, full of cruelty, death, sin, temptation, deception. But we have been set free from that power of sin. You see, I think this is the key to the book of Galatians. This letter is all about being set free, liberated from the bondage of sin. It is to have freedom in Christ from sin and all of its effects. Here's the conclusion I come to in the scriptures. I can't change the world. I can't. I can't stop abortion. I wish I could. I can't stop murder. I wish I could. I can't stop people from lying about one another. I wish I could. I can't stop people from gossiping about one another. I wish I could. But I don't have to live under the tyranny of those sins any longer. Because of Jesus Christ, I can be different. I can be free. And that is what Galatians is about. We are free from the tyranny of this present age because we've been adopted into God's family. Praise God. Now, I've tried all week to try to imagine how I could illustrate this best. And then I remembered the concentration camps. Imagine if you would yourself as one of those inmates. And one day as you look out, you see this man coming up to the gate and the gate still says the words, Arbeit, Macht, fry. good works will liberate you. And this man, he flashes a photo ID and they glance at him and he just walks right on in. It's obvious that he's in control. It's obvious that he's in charge. You see his eyes scanning over the prisoner and he walks over to you and says, follow me. And he trade places with you and he takes your ID and you take his. And then he tells you to just walk out, leave this place of death So with your heart pounding and with your mind not even fully, totally understanding all of what just happened, you just start walking towards the gate, afraid to look around, afraid to look back. And then you walk up to the gate and you just flash that ID, but the guard barely even look at it. And the gates open up and you just walk on out. And much to your surprise, you are free And when you walk far enough along, you look back and see this man who is about to take your place, your death, and you look up at the gate that says good works will liberate you. And you know that now it is a lie. You see, it's the love of God that liberates us. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that liberates. He died in our place and we have been as believers set free. Jesus came to offer himself in our place, dying for our sins. So we might be delivered from the tyranny of this present evil age, Paul is saying here to the church as he's saying, my life has been changed by the grace of God. I now devote my life to living for the one who gave his life for me. And believer, that is how it's supposed to work, isn't it? Then look at what Paul says next, that all of this happened according to the will of our God and father to whom be glory forever. Amen. Worship is not a mood. Worship isn't even music. Worship is a response of gratitude and honor to God who gave himself to deliver us from sin. Worship puts the spotlight of eternity totally on God himself. It wasn't my plan. It wasn't my works that made me free. This was God's plan. This was God's work. The grace that reaches out to deliver us is according to the will of our God and Father. It is his love that liberates. It is his blood that liberates. It is the love of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. They free us from our sin but that freedom is for the taking. If you never understood the nature of the good news that God has paid for your sins and Christ has risen from the dead. I want you to understand something this morning that the good news is all you have to do is by faith, by faith, trust before God that you are a helpless criminal deserving God's judgment that Jesus is God, the son who died and rose again. Trust that he took your place. Trust that he paid the price for you. And you may want to argue with this. You may want to say that you're not worthy and you're right. You're not. Maybe you're thinking that you have got to wait until your life is worthy for God to save you. But that is the cry of every false religion in the world. That is the nature of every cult, every false religion, saying that my good works add to what God has done. And somehow that makes me worthy to be saved. You're helpless. You're hopeless. But if God is drawing you to salvation, you can know that Christ died for you. Now, others may want to argue that you want to do it yourself, that you want to do it in a way where God will just have to accept you because you're so special and you're such a good person. And all I can say to you is this, you're marching right off to the gas chamber because it's a false hope. It's an impossible dream. You're going to die without Christ. To receive Christ, it's just a matter of asking. It's a matter of trusting the Savior that by faith you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and rose again to pay your penalty for sin, that he gives eternal life to those who trust him and him alone for it. And it is God. It is God who deserves all the glory forever and ever. Amen. California's most colorful stagecoach robber was known as Black Bart. This guy was quite the character. For six years, starting in 1877, Black Bart, he committed 28 robberies. He would just wear a flower sack over his head. He would hold a shotgun and then he would say, in a very formal manner, he would write up to these people and say, will you please throw down your treasure box, sir? Well, he was actually wounded in his last robbery. He dropped a handkerchief with the laundry marking FX-07. Now, this was traced back to San Francisco, where the police made one of the most surprising arrests in city history. Steve Blackbart, the stagecoach robber, turned out to be this man, Charles Bolton, one of San Francisco's leading citizens with close ties to the police department. And he had a reputation. He had a reputation as a non-smoking, non-drinking, God-fearing man who went to church with big business interests in gold mines but the citizens of San Francisco had been led astray. They'd been deceived, tricked by someone who had the appearance of a squeaky clean life, but it was all a lie. You see, this is how the legalists will live. This is how the person committed to works shows themselves, looking polished on the outside, but inwardly deceptive. And I think a lot of Christians today are living this way. And I think even more are being tricked by the legalists that have infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ until the Lord returns. There will be always be people in the church who are trying to lead God's people back into bondage, trying to lead God's people away from grace and trying to lead God's people away from the Christ of the Bible. You know, the scriptures are quite clear. Our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again to receive his bride, to rule the world, to establish his kingdom. This is the Lord Jesus Christ that we see described all throughout scripture. But the cults, they have a different gospel. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a Christ, but he is not God, the son, nor did he rise from the dead because according to them, his body dissolved into gas in a tomb. Their Christ came back, they said, in 1914. That's not our Lord Jesus Christ. The Mormons have a different Christ. Their Christ was a polygamist secretly married to Mary and Martha. Again, that's not our Christ. The Seventh-day Adventists have a Christ, but he did not bear our sins in his body. According to them, Satan was the one. Satan was the scapegoat, and our sins were put on him. Again, their Christ is not our Christ. The liberals have their own Christ today, but he was not born of a virgin. His life was only just a good example, and his resurrection was only a myth. This is not the Christ of the Bible. And I will say that the legalists who invaded the churches of Galatia, they had a Christ too. But his grace and his power was insufficient to save. This Christ needed his work on the cross, plus the laws of Moses in order to redeem But we understand that God's grace is the answer to our guilt. Paul said in verse three, he said, grace to you and peace from God, the father and our, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ saves by grace through faith. The person living in the grace of God understands that it is not what we do that makes us righteous. It is Christ living in us. And understanding that when we came to faith, when we came to accept by simple faith that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, we were declared righteous by God. We were rescued, which is the doctrine of justification. You see, it's a sovereign act of God whereby he declares a condemned sinner righteous. The person that is claiming God's grace should understand that it's more than possible to be rescued by God, but yet still fail to be living daily in his grace. These new believers in the churches of Galatia, they were confused. They were confused and tempted to go back to the law. Paul reminded them of the completed work of Jesus Christ. In fact, in every chapter of this letter, he preached Christ. And how did he even end the book of Galatians? He ended with these words. He said, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for Christians to disregard grace is to rob God of the glory that is due to him and him alone. If you add works to faith in the gospel message, you take away from the glory of God. If you add works as needed in order to keep your salvation, you take away from the glory of God. Because the difference, and hear me on this, the difference between grace and legalism is whether or not God gets all the glory. That's the difference. Anything that tries to strip away the glory of redemption away from the creator is a message that does not come from him. You see, grace means we did nothing to deserve it. Grace means we stand in Jesus Christ. We stand forgiven, living in his mercy. It's his grace that has found us. And it is his peace that calms our souls, knowing that we have been reconciled to holy and righteous God, knowing that we have been brought together as his people for his mission and for his glory. So let his grace and let his peace sustain you, because believer, you've been set free. Amen. You've been set free from the penalty of sin, and you have been set free to live for Him. To God be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687.